Let's pray. Our Father, as we turn our time and attention to the preaching and the hearing of your word, we ask that you would send your spirit to be among us, to send your spirit to be with our pastor as he expounds the word to us, that we would be eager and ready listeners. We ask that you would come and open our minds to know the truth of your gospel for those who are here that have not heard it or have not understood it. We pray that this would be the day that they would come to faith. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Will you take your your copy of the scriptures and turn once again to Mark's gospel? We're in Mark chapter 3. Our brother Pascal Deneau was here last Lord's Day, so I did not preach, but the prior Sunday preached from this same text But you may recall that Mark uses a literary technique known as a sandwich. So what it means simply is that he begins one story, he in a sense interrupts that story with another story, and then he comes back to the third one, or comes back to the initial story. We saw this in verse 20, in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to the end of the chapter, Jesus' family, his earthly family, his natural family, comes to appeal to him because they had believed some of the reports that he was out of his mind. He was facing persecution. He was facing official opposition from the Jewish leaders who had conspired with the Roman authorities. And then not only that, he had the difficulty of this large crowd pressing in upon him. So he was in physical danger. He was in danger of of persecution, if not incarceration or, or worse. And his family was concerned about him. And... In the middle of that, in the middle of our sandwich, as it were, Jesus makes this statement about a sin which is unforgivable, which is unpardonable. And he assigns this sin to these very Jewish leaders who are making these accusations against him. So as we consider this middle section, today I'm going to read here in a moment verses 22 to 30. And in these words that Jesus speaks, this has been the source of of many being provoked provoked to confusion or doubt, maybe even anger. He speaks of forgiveness of sin broadly, comprehensively, and yet also he declares that one particular sin will not be forgiven. There is one sin that will not or cannot be pardoned. And perhaps you or or someone you know has been anxious about that very thought. And maybe the question has come to your mind, have I committed such a sin that could not be forgiven? Or has my loved one committed a sin that will not be forgiven? So as we think about this, I want to to divide this under three headings just for the sake of organization. The first thing that we see in this text, as I'm going to read here in a moment, 22 to 30, the first thing that we notice that just jumps out at us is the reality of hell and Satan. The reality of hell and Satan. Jesus just takes this as as a fact. Secondly, Let's just discover, what does he mean by this sin which cannot be forgiven? 
What does he mean by this unpardonable sin? And thirdly, the glory of forgiveness of sins for those who belong to him. Let's read the text and have those thoughts in mind. As I read it, you will hear with your own ears the reality of hell and Satan. You will hear with your own ears his declaration that there is a sin that is not forgivable. But also, if you listen carefully, you will hear with your own ears a glorious statement that all other sins will be forgiven the sons of men. So let's hear the word of God. Follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's notice, first of all, the reality of hell and Satan. Do you see how Jesus takes this as just a point of fact? He just assumes this is true, because it is. And notice something else that's interesting. Of all the controversies, of all the disagreements that Jesus has with the rulers of the Jews, this isn't one of them. They're in agreement about the reality of Satan, the reality of hell. Jesus takes this as just as an indisputable fact. When they say to him, they make this accusation. Now you'll remember, maybe perhaps you do, it's been a couple weeks ago. So the scribes are described here as coming down from Jerusalem, meaning This is an official delegation. This is, they are coming and saying, this is the official position of the rulers of Israel. This is the effect of propaganda. This is the party line. So anything other than what they're saying will be considered by the Jewish authorities as misinformation, disinformation. And they so and the, the, the way that the, the verb is constructed in the Greek, they were saying, they kept on saying this. It wasn't they said this one time, they were saying it repeatedly. And because they were teachers, they were not just saying this as their own private opinion, they were teaching this as the official position. That's important. And they were saying this. He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. That's the official position. And Jesus doesn't dispute with them at all 
He doesn't say, well, you know, Beelzebub's a metaphor. He doesn't say, the devil is, is, a, is a metaphor for sin or a metaphor for evil. He doesn't actually, no, no, Jesus doesn't say any of that, does he? He takes it as a point of fact. He says, that's, there is such a thing as Satan. He is a created being. In fact, he says he's a strong man. As he tells these parables, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless a stronger man come. So he says Satan exists and he is a strong being. He's a real being. He has a kingdom and he has a dominion and he has a people in his dominion. Jesus understood Satan, in fact, to be the ruler of this world. In fact, in John's gospel, in John chapter 12, you don't have to turn here, but you can just hear it, verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You hear what Jesus said? He says Satan is the ruler of this world. But he's the strong man who's entered that house. He's the stronger man who's entered the strong man's house. And Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, being, when I'm crucified and raised from the dead, will draw all people to myself. Now the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the church at Ephesus, he says we were all once part of this kingdom, of this kingdom of darkness, of the dominion and power of Satan. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle says this, and you, meaning all of us, all those believers who were in Ephesus, and this applies to every one of us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You hear the words that Paul uses? He says, this, he refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And that all of us were under that dominion, and, and part of being under that dominion caused us to be driven by the passions of our flesh. Driven by the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. That's our default position. That's every man, woman, and child who's ever been born. That's the default position. Now, many in our world would like for you to doubt that. Many, in fact, most on the planet today would have us to doubt that. They would have us to doubt the reality and the existence of Satan, of evil, and of evil men. In fact, under the name of Christianity even, many of the liberal strains of Christianity deny this very fact. They want to depersonalize evil or they want to deny its very existence. They want to make it into a metaphor. They want to deny that we have a personal adversary. But the Bible doesn't give us that option, does it? The Bible doesn't give to us an option of saying, well, e evil is a, is a mystical force. Evil is not a mystical force. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. God created all things very good. There is no dualism. George Lucas is not right. Don't get your theology from George Lucas. There is no dark side of the force and good side of the force. 
Evil is the absence of good where good ought to be. Let's take that definition from James Dolezal, by the way. It's the absence of good where good ought to be. The Bible doesn't give us the opportunity of dismissing Satan. We do have a personal adversary. And not only do we have an adversary, but those adversaries are condemned to be punished in a particular place. And again, many want to deny this as well. They want to deny the very existence of hell and say, well, hell is not really a place. It's more of a concept. It's a myth. For the wicked, they will go to a tangible place for punishment, for eternity. Again, many want to believe that when life ends, either all people go to heaven or all people go to some better place you know what this is called? It's universalism. It's universalism, and the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible rejects that. But some try to get around it another way by saying that men, and, and particularly the wicked, will be simply, will simply destroyed. They will cease to exist so that the righteous, most good people, will go to a better place. But the wicked, they won't be eternally punished in a particular place. They just will cease to exist. It's called annihilationism. It's another heresy that the Bible condemns. So neither universalism is the answer, nor annihilationism is the answer. It's contrary not only to the whole of the Scriptures, but this particular text. Jesus taught the opposite. He taught that the devil and his angels are real. He taught the place of eternal punishment is real. It's literal. It's tangible. It is a physical place of eternal punishment. Punishment. Listen to Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 25. This is this famous speech where Jesus is describing what the day of judgment will look like. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people, individuals, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but on the goats, but the goats on his left. Then he goes down a little further. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Does that sound like a metaphor to you? No, it doesn't. He's speaking of actual spiritual beings and an actual physical place. This reality of hell and Satan comes to a decisive point in our text when Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So what is this unpardonable sin? What is this sin for which there is no pardon, there is no forgiveness? Because Jesus takes it as a point of fact that Satan and hell are real, and then by implication, those who commit this unpardonable sin, are doomed for eternity to join Satan and his angels in this place that the Bible calls hell. What is this unforgivable sin? That brings us to our second point. Now think first of all about the context. You're going to have to think back about what we've studied in the first two and a half chapters so far. We have seen Jesus performing works and miracles that only God can do. Remember, one of Mark's theological emphases in the, in the gospel is to present Jesus to us as the Son of God. When he healed a leper, 
Only God can heal a leper. And every Jew knew that. When he pronounced forgiveness of sins, and the Jews were, there was a controversy there. Oh, he says he can forgive sins. And Jesus says, which is harder to do? To say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, take up your bed and walk? Just so you know that the Son of Man does have authority to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. He casts out demons. He did works that no mere man could ever do. The Jews were witnesses to these things. They had heard eyewitness testimony about these things. The Pharisees knew the power of God in Christ. They also, it was their job, by the way, they also knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies about the Messiah. They knew his doctrines. They knew his works were divine. They had seen and heard these very miracles demonstrating, manifesting this truth that he is the Son of God. Now, some have sought to sort of remove the thorns from this passage, in a sense, by saying, well, what they're talking about here, what they're talking about here is a sin that was particular to this event historically, and it couldn't be repeated. So this unpardonable sin could only refer to these specific people. In fact, J.C. Ryle mentions this in his commentary. You can read about that, where he says, there were those who just said, well, this, this sin could only be committed at the time of Christ, and it can't be committed today. Now, that's not J.C. Ryle's position, by the way. That's, he's describing that there are those who hold that view. I don't want to misrepresent my brother. But let's think about what, what makes this sin unpardonable. What, what are the features that we see as we read through the text? What do we see here that helps us understand what is this unpardonable sin? Jesus refers to it as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But it's more than just words. We know blasphemy is to speak or to think thoughts against the nature or character or attributes or power of God. But this is more than just thinking something or saying something against the Spirit of God. Something more, more definitive than that, and, and far worse than that. Number one, this proceeds from a clear knowledge of both the law and the gospel. The Pharisees knew better. The scribes knew better. The rulers of the Jews were not saying this out of ignorance. They were not saying this out of naivete. They weren't saying this because they were simply taught something wrong and then were repeating it. They had a very clear knowledge of this. This, this error proceeds from a certainty of the goodness of God and yet re a rejection of it. They knew. They knew from their own eyewitness account that what Jesus was doing could only be divine. It could only be the power of God, but they willfully, maliciously, deceitfully said otherwise. And again, these were teachers. These weren't just sharing a private opinion. Such a man that Jesus says commits this unpardonable sin denies what he knows to be from God as true and good and instead says it's false and evil. Further, this kind of sin, this particular sin, reveals itself. It manifests itself. It shows up as persecution, as an outward continual abiding hatred for what 
for those things of God, and particularly for what is good and right and true and just and holy. And lastly, irreversibly, there is no remorse. There's no remorse. There's no second thought. This is a a self-conscious, willful, decided position against God, contrary to what you know is true. It was willful, it was done according to knowledge, it was not ignorance. This was not some ordinary, commonplace blasphemy. It was not merely slandering God from deceit of the flesh, or even from malice. Listen to John Gill. The old Reformed Baptist, John Gill, says this, they charged Christ with having a devil and his miracles with with being wrought by the help of the devil, when at the same time they knew in their own consciences they were works which were wrought by the finger and the spirit of God, and so were guilty of the sin against the Holy Ghost. The unpardonable sin for which there is no remission. And this is mentioned as a reason why our Lord said that he did what he did concerning that sin. Because they had been guilty of it and so were liable to everlasting punishment on account of it. You hear that? They knew that what Jesus was doing was by the work and by the Spirit of God. They knew that. And yet they lied to themselves and to others, and said, no, this is by the power of Satan. So as often has been said in response to this this passage, beloved, if you fear that you have committed this sin, then you haven't. If you're concerned for your soul, you've not committed this sin. If you are sensitive in your conscience, even to ask the question, maybe in your own mind, you've, you've recalled times before you came to faith in Christ where you blasphemed God. Maybe you cursed God. And you think, did I commit this unpardonable sin? To commit this sin can never be inadvertent. It can never be accidental. It can never be according to ignorance. Are you willing to pray and to seek God? If this is true, you haven't committed this sin. If you're concerned and you're anxious about your own soul, if you're concerned and anxious about eternity, then let that be evidence to you that you've not committed this sin. It's impossible for any of God's elect, it's impossible for any of God's children to commit this sin. Now, I mentioned earlier that this passage, chapter 3, forms a kind of a sandwich. And, and I mentioned last time that when you eat a sandwich, you eat a hamburger, you eat a sandwich, one of the functions of having meat or something between two slices of bread is so that everything melds together. And so the meat in the middle is interpreted through the taste of the bread, and the taste of the bread is interpreted through the taste of the meat, right? Somewhat of a sloppy analogy, but you get it. And so these these narratives are interpreted together. And what the effect is, is Jesus is saying very clearly, those are those who are on the inside of the kingdom of God and those are on the outside of the kingdom of God. And even his own natural family was not automatically part of the kingdom of God because they shared his blood. They would have to be washed 
by his blood in order to be his true family. That's his point. And so here, he's saying, if you are an insider, you cannot commit this sin. If you belong to Christ, you cannot commit an unpardonable sin. Dear believer, dear Christian, do not let your conscience be troubled. Do not think that you had an errant thought, or even you had a willful intentional thought or words that would put you beyond the reach of God's grace. That can never be true. None of his children can or have committed this unpardonable sin. But we dare not dismiss the reality of an unpardonable sin. We, we can't just take this out of our Bible, or we can't, as some have said, say, say, well, that only applies to a particular place in time. It's no longer a danger. It is a danger. So you look to your own children. As you look to those, your loved ones. We ought always to encourage to pursue a tender heart before the Lord, to be open to his word, to pray for his grace, to seek his face, not to presume. Our Lord teaches very clearly that such hardness of the human heart does in fact exist. This also should be some measure of comfort to us as we look at the world around us and we see Sometimes things that trouble our souls. And the reality of this fallen world is that that kind of sin does still exist. There are men and women who have so hardened themselves willfully, according to knowledge, and by their own hardness of heart, they've rejected the grace of the gospel. But, praise be to God, this is not the final word about forgiveness. See, sometimes our minds can go to the reality of this unforgivable sin, and we can so focus on that hard statement that Jesus makes about the unpardonable sin that we neglect to see the glorious proclamation about the forgiveness of every other sin. And we lose the glory of the passage. Jesus says, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, all sins. He proclaims the glory of forgiveness of sins. Number one, Jesus presents himself as the strong man, the stronger man who has gone into the strong man's house and bound Satan and has secured victory. In fact, he has plundered Satan's goods. And secondly, he declares unequivocally that there is no other sin, no other sin, that cannot or will not be forgiven by God. Jesus is this strong man who has conquered Satan. Jesus took upon himself our humanity. He clothed himself in human flesh. Think about this. Jesus says in the parable, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Well, in order to bind the strong man, the other side of that is he must first enter his house. Remember, this present age is Satan's house. 
It's the dominion of darkness. Jesus came into this world, the second person of the Trinity. The eternal Son of God took on our flesh and entered into Satan's dominion and whipped him, bound him, triumphed over him, and put him naked on display to open shame. He conquered, him, he conquered Satan, exposed him before both men and angels. And do you know this, men and women, boys and girls, if you are in Christ, you are the plundered goods that Jesus speaks about. You are what he went into the devil's house and stole. He's ransomed you. He's relieved you of that imprisonment. If you're in Christ, it's because he took you from the kingdom of darkness by force and transferred you into the kingdom of light. I love Psalm 24. It's just a, it's a vivid picture of the Lord Jesus Christ descending to earth and then ascending victorious. And I love the last refrain, refrain, verses 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It's a vivid picture of a conquering king climbing back up to the mountain, climbing up to the fortress, and he heralds out to open the doors. And he's not alone. He's coming with all the spoils of war, which is you and me if you're in Christ. He's coming up carrying you, because the, the psalm begins with, who can ascend? Well, the answer is no one except he who first descended. He descended into the very realm of Satan, took on our flesh, conquered him, and then is climbing the holy mountain, taking us with him as the goods that he spoiled, that he robbed from Satan. Sometime back, when we were studying through the book of Judges, this theme comes up over and over and over again. You know, you know the, the cycle of the judges. People would rebel and God would deliver them into the hands of their enemies and they would cry out for God. Why? Because they needed a conqueror. They needed a stronger man to enter the strong man's house and break their bonds. And God in his kindness to them would raise up a judge, a deliverer, and each time that judge or deliverer was a type of the Christ who would come. Think about Gideon or Samson or the other judges. They were, they were types. They pointed us to the strong man who would ultimately come. And again and again and again, they needed this strong man to defeat their enemies. And now Jesus has come as that final conqueror, the final judge. He's the mighty man who's gone into Satan's own house and defeated him, vanquished him. So that's when Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whether, whatever blasphemies they utter. Saints, let that sink in. All 
sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is, this is complete forgiveness. No other sin other than the unpardonable one that Jesus mentions is beyond forgiveness. And we can think of examples from the scriptures, certainly, can't we? Think about the thief on the cross. Jesus was crucified between two men. And the scriptures record that at first, both were blaspheming him. Both were mocking him. Both were taunting him. But one, by the grace of God, came to his senses. And Jesus said to that one, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He was a blasphemer. But he turned or we, we could think about Peter. Three times, even being told in advance, warned in advance by the Lord. Three times Peter denied the Lord when it mattered most. In fact, the text tells us that Peter cursed, denied the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was not only forgiven, he was restored to a place of magnificent usefulness in the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul, who by his own testimony, by his own testimony, he said, I was a violent persecutor and a blasphemer. You remember in the book of Acts, in Acts 6 or 7, where he holds the coat of those who stoned Stephen. And Paul was, was on his way to Damascus with letters from the official authorities to arrest men and women and boys and girls who were Christians, and put them into prison. When the Lord encountered him, and the Lord said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So it wasn't without cause. Paul wasn't just being hyperbolic. He wasn't being falsely humble when he said, I was the chief of sinners. And yet Paul says, but grace was given to me because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Or think about the members of the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth existed in a place that was renowned for its wickedness and debauchery. In fact, the word Corinthianize had become a verb by this point in history, and to Corinthianize meant to participate in all manner of wickedness and debauchery. And I think about this, we, we, the Lord's statement here, when he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. I think about those in Corinth, about which Paul says, this is in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think, how should this shape our thinking and our practice of evangelism? When we look at the world around us, do we believe that all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, even their blasphemies, 
if they will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from that sin? How should that shape our evangelism? How should it shape our own hearts when we look at a lost world and we see the despicable things around us and we're tempted to think that one is beyond the reach of God's grace? How should this comfort those of you who are already in Christ as you contemplate your own sin? Because some of you, some of you in the very room today could say, like the Corinthians could say, I was once a sexually immoral person. I was a fornicator. I was an adulterer. Maybe I was even a homosexual, but I'm not anymore. The grace of God found me and cleansed me and washed me, and I'm not that anymore. Or I was, some others might say, I was once a reviler. I was a brawler. I was a contentious man. And by the grace of God, the Lord Jesus changed me. I'm no longer what I used to be. Or you look at the list again and you say, well, I, I was a drunkard. But the gospel of Jesus Christ found me in my sin and he cleansed me and he washed me and he sanctified me and he justified me before the throne of God. And I'm not a drunk anymore. Some other might say, I was a thief. I was a swindler. I manipulated people. The greed of my own heart told me to lust after things that I wouldn't stop. I wouldn't be governed by rules and laws to get what I wanted. But by God's grace, that's not me anymore. I'm washed. I'm cleansed. I'm forgiven. Still others would say, I was, I was angry. I was angry with God even. I shook my fist at him and said, how dare you make me this way? How dare you make my circumstances this way? You hated his providence. You distrusted his goodness. Now you can say, I now know the goodness of God. I know the grace of God revealed to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm still struggling. I still labor to be content with my circumstances. But I no longer blaspheme God. I no longer blame Him for the problems that I face. Truly, Jesus says, I say to you, all sins, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And He's not speaking here not only quantitatively, that the, the whole number of your sins will be forgiven. That's true. But he's saying the full range of sins, whether you view them as little sins or large sins, every category of sin, go through the Ten Commandments, one through ten, and name the categories. Every single category will be forgiven. Nothing is beyond the reach of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says these words, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, he says, these words fall lightly on the ears of many persons. They see no particular beauty in them, but to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness and deeply sensible of his need of mercy, these words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven, the sins of youth and of age, the sins of head and hand and tongue and imagination. 
the sins against all God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, and the sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter, all, all may be forgiven. The blood of Christ can cleanse all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eye. These are sweet words, aren't they? And so, yes, we ought to give our attention to our Lord's statement here about the unpardonable sin. We ought to, we ought to make sure we understand that. But let's don't let that eclipse the far greater reality here that all sin will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. Do not be such a person today who lets these words, as Ryle says, fall lightly on your ears. To the unbeliever that's here today, even some of our own children in our midst, young people, do not let these words fall lightly upon you. Do not think that you are not a great sinner in need of great pardon and grace. Do not think, young homeschool kid, that you haven't blasphemed God by your words, your thoughts, your actions. Do not think in your heart that you have not offended eternally the one who made you. Do not let these, do not let these words fall lightly upon your ears. You need the grace of forgiveness. You need the grace of pardon. You need the grace, the grace of cleansing. You need the grace of being justified before the face of a holy, holy, holy God. If you have not yet received pardon and forgiveness of your sins by the authority of Christ himself, I can say this because it's not my authority, it's his. Be reconciled to him today. Be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek forgiveness in him by the only means that God has given, by the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only method, the only remedy. Believe his gospel of forgiveness of sins. Confess to him today. Don't wait. Confess to him today that you're a miserable, helpless sinner and have no hope in yourself. You have no remedy. You have no answer on your own. Confess to him that, that, that you believe that he alone is the source of righteousness for you and a forgiveness of your sins. Dear brothers and sisters, for you who are in Christ, think about this. Let your enemy fire his hottest and most fiery dart at you. Let him bring it. Let him come. Let him accuse you all he wants. There is no sin that you have ever committed, not in your thoughts, not in your words, not with the actions of your hands. There is not one sin that is beyond forgiveness. There is not one thing you've done or will do that will fail to be pardoned. So let him bring his accusation. There is no sin beyond the scope and the efficacy of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says with such boldness, with such confidence there in Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's not speaking hypothetically. 
The stronger man has come into the strong man's house and whipped him, subdued him, defeated him, subjected him to open shame. So Paul says, who's left? The enemy's champion's already been defeated. Who's coming at you now? Paul goes on. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And he just compounds the questions now. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I'm waiting for the answer. Who? The enemy who's defeated? The enemy who's conquered? The enemy who's already been put to open shame? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So not only has he died historically, not only was he raised from the dead historically, but presently he's interceding for you, saints. He's praying for you right this moment for your perseverance, for your comfort, for your strength and help. Paul goes on, still accumulating the questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verily, truly. Amen. Jesus says, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies, blasphemies they utter. Oh, dear friends, if you're in Christ, own this promise as your own. Be comforted in this. When your conscience accuses you, remember John says, love of God is greater than your conscience. When the enemy accuses you, remember he's defeated. When you recall even those presumptuous sins that, that rightly tend to bother us the most because we knew better and we did it anyway. Do not think that even that is beyond the forgiving power and the forgiving scope of God in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have died. In fact, you've been raised with him. No charge, no accusation, no sin is beyond the cleansing and purifying work of the Holy Spirit through the efficacy, through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the complete and perfect righteousness that's yours by faith. We believe this. It is true, and, and Jesus takes it as a point of fact, it is true that Satan and hell are real. And that a stronger man has overcome Satan. It is true that there is a sin that is unpardonable. It is true that it is possible for a man, for a woman, to harden their hearts to such a degree 
that they willfully, not ignorantly, willfully, blaspheme the Spirit of God and say what, what God is doing is actually evil and that Satan has done it. But don't let that eclipse the greater reality, the tangible reality for God's people, that there is no sin, no sin, that will not be forgiven the children of men. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for your word. We thank you for the promise of forgiveness. And we thank you not only for the promise, but for the reality of it that we can know in this very moment the forgiveness of our sins. Holy Spirit, will you you come to those who are here today that do not yet know this, who have not yet tasted, not yet experienced the cleansing work of the triune God working through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray for those who belong to Christ, for those here, your own people, I pray you will do what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, and that is to cleanse our consciences from dead works. Apply to us, Holy Spirit, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in his gospel. Help us to be reminded of, to be assured of, to become more and more certain of the forgiveness of our sins and from that gratitude which flows to learn to serve you more, to love one another deeper, to walk in an expectant, urgent faith before you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.